It's a, an absolute delight to be with you. I've enjoyed the meetings thus far. You've got incredible young people. I really enjoy them on Friday night. And uh, we had a good time, a great time with the guys yesterday morning. I do bring you apologies. The princess is not traveling with me on this particular trip. Uh, my darling wife is in uh, easing back into ministry uh, 15 months ago, January last year. She had a very, very serious fall, about 1.7 meters down an embankment and seriously broke both ankles. Uh, the right foot was completely dislocated off the leg. Where in the fall, she has uh, two plates and uh, 11 pins just in the right ankle and one plate and seven pins in the left. So she's driving cars, she's walking, she's handling steps, but we've got to pace how much she does. And so I do bring you her warm greetings. She will want to know tonight when I'm talking to her on the phone, did you pass my greetings on? Especially to the ladies, all the princesses. And so I do bring you her greetings. Uh, just quickly at the back, um, there's only a small amount of our resources. One of my books, the guys completely bought it out yesterday morning. But there's um, a dozen or so different topics of CDs. This message is called Weapons of Mass Distraction. They're still trying to find the ones of weapons of mass destruction. But I'm telling you, there's a lot of weapons of mass distraction out there. Distract you from your goals, from your vision, from your marriage, from your Christian walk. It's a very powerful message. It deals with seven weapons of mass distraction. Uh, Pauline has one there, which is a, a great one for ladies. Uh, and it's headed, what tags are you wearing? So often women feel they have to be this, that, and the other to fulfill somebody else's super expectations. And it's a very powerful message. There's uh, several DVDs. This is one which we're not ministering on over the weekend. It's uh, our parenting seminar. Uh, uh, it's four hours of uh, material. The DVD, uh, basically from about the two or three-year-old up through to about 12-year-old. It's been extremely helpful. We've um, had, I think we're about 25, 28, maybe even 30,000 have gone through our parenting seminar. We've got the three most amazing kids uh, Charlene's in the ministry with her husband and they pastor a great church. Her two sons are multi-millionaire businessmen and are just so powerful for the kingdom of God. They, they uh, featured a lot on televisions and both of them have books out and it uh, just has been so great. People often say, did you have trouble in the parenting years? And I say, yes, our kids had awful trouble with their parents. <laughs> you see, it's not the kids. Give them a break. It's us parents who don't know what we're doing. We're learning as we go, aren't we? And we get to about my age and we start having a few brains on parenting. And so basically you'll find that extremely helpful. There are also CDs. Now, the princess has um, co-authored several of my books or our books together, particularly this one on marriage. carries the same title as the seminar usually has, Created Sexual and Enjoying It. And it's been such a powerful book. Selwyn Hughes, that many of you would know of, is going to be with the Lord now. But uh, Selwyn says of this, one of the most valuable books I've read on the subject. I thoroughly recommend it. Bill Hybels has endorsement, Brian Houston. It has a gorgeous picture of beauty and the beast. That's exactly what you can have in your marriage. Either the beauty or the beast. Decide what you want to live with. I want to live with the princess. I don't want to live with the beast. And I hope it doesn't shock you, but there's a bit of beast in all of you. Just below the surface. <laughs> so you'll find that a great blessing. Ladies, Pauline's book um, is a fabulous book for women on women's issues. Be someone different. Be yourself. It's, uh, my wife comes from an adopted situation, doesn't know the biological side, of the father inside especially, and uh, then was adopted into a home that 
broke up seriously when she was six or seven. Not that she knew she was adopted until three months before we married. And uh, basically was told all her life, you're useless and you're an idiot and you'll never amount to anything. Never speak to your children like that. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Speak life, etc. But at about 16... She had an, an amazing, well, actually at 13, she had an amazing encounter with God. And at 16, she had an amazing encounter with me. And, uh, <laughs> and we were, have been the best friends ever since. And we, we married at 20. And God has blessed us. We've just celebrated our 40th wedding anniversary. You'll find that a powerful book, ladies. Um, excuse me, just ducking down here, but I've got a couple of others. Um, I speak in the corporate as well. I, I notice the, the corporate conference coming up soon. Hey, get behind that. Even if you've got a dream and a vision to start a business one day, get in that. Start resourcing yourself now to success further on. My one son travels the world speaking on corporate issues, and uh, he would be thrilled to hear of that. But um, I speak in the corporate area. This is used a lot in that realm, as well as amongst each and every one of us as Christians. Uh, it's, of course, nobody in the Hawke's Bay area ever suffers with stress or burnout. But in case you've got a friend somewhere else that does, you'll find this very useful for them. It's called Don't Just Do Something, Sit There. And uh, it's been so helpful and so useful. Living outside the box is how to fulfill your destiny, rise to your greatest potential. The box is all the hurts and pains and disappointments of the past. They will not control us. Tonight I want to share a message with you. How many are familiar with the prayer of Jabez? How many have got the little book of Jabez? Come on, you've got to be a good Christian. You've got a Bible and the little book of Jabez. used to be that about six years ago. I'm going to share stuff with you about Jabez you have not heard. The background to why Jabez prayed the prayer he did. And it's a really an outworking of those sorts of principles of learning to come from behind. The message is called Winning from Behind. Uh, I've only got two copies um, of Ultimate Betrayal left. That is sexual betrayal. Especially if you're in any form of counselling, you'll find this extremely useful. Many of you know and respect the name of Jack Hayford. Uh, probably Mr. Pentecost in America. Jack, I've known for many years. He did the forward on this because he believed in the project of working with ministries or leaders or the leadership level of churches when sexual betrayal gets into their life, working with marriages when adultery gets in, working with our incredible teenagers and young men and women when they cross the sexual line and shouldn't. The end product of any discipline, we Pentecostal churches are not bad at discipline, but I tell you what, we're lousy at restoration. The end product of any discipline should be restoration, not excommunication. True? So you'll find that extremely helpful. Only two copies left of claustrophobic saints dealing with personalities. Do you have the sort of personality that builds or wrecks or destroys? Yeah, you build your community by what you say and how you live. Do you build your marriage the same way or build your kids? Do you build your church? Do you only ever speak good about the church? Dealing with personalities and issues. It's in the form of a novel, but you'll find it extremely helpful. Bread and jam fast going out. I've only got a few copies left. It's daily devotions for every day of the year. Bread stands for Bible reading every day and devotions. And, and jam stands for journaling and meditating. And so it's, every double page has a full week's studies on a particular topic. Uh, Miracles of the Old Testament. I've just opened at week 29. Then you've got space for journaling. It's extremely helpful. And then of course the other face of conflict. Finally any material uh, or material on actually managing conflict. Conflict isn't bad. So heck, the stuff I've seen is, 
No, conflict isn't bad. Conflict's neutral. It's what you do with it that makes it good or bad. Conflict can be very therapeutic and revive, or it can wreck. You'll find that extremely useful, especially, again, if you're uh, dealing with people a lot. The marriage seminar. Paul and I love uh, the work that God has released us into. We've been travelling now for 19 years, and so people say, where do you live? I say, actually, we change bags in Sydney. It's a bit like that. I'm only home for a few days, and then I'm off to England, and uh, I've just come from the Sunshine Coast last weekend, and Pauline happened to be in those meetings, but the only way we could get it there was a flyer there. But um, we, we have just been so blessed. Um, a few years ago, I was awarded Citizen of the Year. There were 12 categories of Citizen of the Year. Some of them, most of them were sport, as you would realise. People like Ian Thorpe and Cathy Freeman were, uh, got those sorts of Citizen of the Year. But I got the one on community services, as presented at Parliament House, for our work on, uh, out in the community in the areas of marriage and family. Um, Two years ago, I think it was, yes, two years ago, our Attorney General advised me that my name had been put forward as one of the potential members for the Australian Families Tribunal. And I thank God for that. They didn't eventually go ahead with that tribunal. But the thing is that God has given us good grace in the secular realm, and I thank God for that. Now, the, the seminar itself, um, it isn't presented in a religious way. So it's completely safe for you to bring your own church friends. Risk it. You know, really invite them. I'm telling you at approximately... What time do we start, actually? Seven o'clock? So at quarter past nine, that's why I needed that time, at quarter past nine on Tuesday night, every one of these are useless. Totally useless. But right now, they're an evangelistic tool that you can share and you can and take to your friends, encourage them along. If they say, oh, it's in a church, going to be church, you say, no, no, no. And what you don't realise is our church is donating its building for two nights so that Ozfame and Ivan Harrell can actually present the seminar. That's the way to put it, to de-religiousise the whole exercise. We have a lot of fun. So there's two rules to come into our seminar. Rule number one, come along to have fun. It's okay to laugh. It's okay to have a good time. And rule number two, nobody for two nights, not one of you, are allowed to go... I've been telling you for 20 years, pay attention. <laughs> Don't do that. Now, if only one of you can come because your dear beloved is away from work, don't go to home and download on them. Well, Ivan said you should. No, don't do that to them, but still come. Great for singles, our wonderful singles. We average, and we keep fairly accurate stats, we average approximately 14% of our seminar floor are singles. 18 and above, in other words, those who've never been married, so young people upwards from 18 and above, divorcees, uh, widows, widowers, long-term singles, and on it goes. So look forward to you being there. Um, we have really sensed the, the um, impact of, uh, of the seminar. Having had 70,000, you can imagine that, um, you know, we get all sorts. We love busting records. The oldest couple, I'm serious, we're in their 90s. Isn't that lovely? That is wonderful. The largest seminar we had was in London, where the seminar was three times the size of the church that hosted it. Three times. Now, it's a small church. You might say that's more possible. than That's true, but they had really worked on their invitation base. So you might have lovely Christians that attend one of the other fine churches in town. That's good. Invite them, certainly. But invite your own church friends and neighbours and, and whatever else. And uh, the largest unchurch component, we had one seminar with 66% of the seminar floor were unchurched. That was one of the funniest uh, seminars we'd had. It was hilarious. It was great, which might say something about some Christians. But nevertheless, 
It's just really a wonderful time. Don't say, I can't sacrifice two nights. You don't realise how busy I am. I'm not asking you to sacrifice two nights. I'm asking you to invest two nights. What's your marriage worth? You might say, well, I don't want to pay you to go to marriage. Let me give you an illustration just before I go to the Word. Uh, We were doing a seminar in Perth, and the pastor had gone around his entire street, invited all his neighbours, and he, he was talking to the guy across the road, and the guy said, this can't be right. He said, oh, he said, this would be great. He said, but this can't be right. And, and, and Steve said to him, why? He said, the price. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, I, I won't be able to come because my wife and I went to one last weekend. And Steve, oh, that's great. He said, it was a hotel retreat, so a different style. He said, but we just paid $2,000. And Steve did exactly what some of you just did then, sort of, <gasps> and he said, listen, our marriage is in trouble. Let me tell you, $2,000 is a lot cheaper than divorcing. Good point. Good point. This is an unchurched guy. So we look at the opportunity of uh, seeing you there. I have a ministry of either wrecking pulpits or doing something, but uh, thank you very much for rescuing me. So take the opportunity, and I I look forward to you being there, and tonight as well. You know, we preachers, when we uh, prepare the Word of God, I love studying. I love studying. I love work. But uh, I love studying and, and preparing something. Something I'll sometimes, or most times, I'll work on stuff for a month or a month and a half for a preacher. I'm working on the leadership stuff that I've been working on for six weeks now. But, you know, because I enjoy preparing, it doesn't mean it's relevant for you. With your feet on the ground, rubber hit the road type of life. So I better do a quick synopsis to see what I think could be useful whether it's useful to anybody here. Is there anybody here, just possibly one or two, is there anybody here possibly ever gone through a time of difficulty? (laughs) Oh, there's a few of you out there. I'd like to share with you about how do we cope when we're stuck somewhere between a rock and a hard place. When everything in this is screaming out, God, this isn't fair. We don't say that around Christians too often. We might get corrected on our theology. But let me give you my definition of God's theology on fair. I don't think God's got the word fair in his dictionary. And a lot of stuff isn't fair. And I'm not the only person who's said to themselves, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask, why? Well, let me tell you, you won't. Because in that moment that you are translated, you will know as you are known. And it will all make sense. As a matter of fact, if you've lived life just a few years, you actually find out a few years down the road, you can see more clearly with hindsight than you can when you're smack bang in the middle of that thing. And you can see the grace of God. I had cancer 11 years ago. It's not a fun day when you sit in front of your specialist and says, sorry, Ivan, you've got cancer. It sort of messes up morning tea. (laughs) Messes up a bit more than that. But you know, now looking back on the hundreds and thousands that I've been able to minister to, and I thank God for every experience in life. Did I enjoy some of them? No. I'd rather God had sent me the DVD series. (laughs) I would have promised him I'll watch it twice and take notes issue a little book and made a sermon on it. But please don't let me have to go through it. Turning your Bibles, please, to almost the centre of the Word of God, Psalm 46, not far off the middle. 
Psalm 46. I'm going to give the background to this story. What you may or may not know is the Psalms have actual background stories. One of the greatest kings of Israel, Hezekiah, has come to the throne at 25 years of age. His father was the most abominable man. Today we say, well, I can't get ahead because, you know, I come from a dysfunctional family. Rubbish. It's not a matter of where you came from. It's just a matter of where you're going. This guy had a dad who sacrificed some of his brothers and sisters on the fires of Moloch, who closed the house of God and used it as a garbage dump, who disbanded the priesthood, who absolutely abolished spiritual life in Israel. And the moment he died, Hezekiah doesn't bother to say, well, that's it, you know, thank goodness he's gone, but what can I do? His attitude was, enough's enough. From this day, we're going to serve the Lord. And he turned the heart of Israel around. But at 39 years of age, just 15 years late, 14 years later, he's dying. He has a terrible boil on his leg and his whole blood system is toxic. Israel has, uh, rather, Jerusalem has been completely surrounded by the enemy for 11 months. The Assyrians are about to destroy the city. Everybody's at the point of starvation. They'd seen it coming years before. They'd seen the Assyrians take Samaria, then take Lachish, and then take other cities. And they had realized that Jerusalem had a major problem. Its water supply was on the outside of the city at a place called Gion or the Virgin's Pool. And so they had begun what is one of the most amazing engineering schemes of biblical times. And that is they dug a tunnel underneath Jerusalem, um, 1,770 something feet inland, and brought it, the water to the middle of Jerusalem to what is today known as the Pool of Siloam. So if you've ever been to Israel, the Pool of Siloam is the end of Hezekiah's tunnel. It took nearly three years to dig that tunnel. By the time it was finished, the, the Assyrians were about to... Uh, come around and to uh, begin their siege against Jerusalem. So they stopped up all the wells on the outsides of the walls and the, and the uh, siege was on. Eleven months, not an arrow is, is shot. They're trying to starve the city out, which was the normal practice. Hezekiah is dying. And the prophet Isaiah comes to visit him, which, by the way, was his cousin and also, of course, a prince in Israel. Now, a lot of us think, oh, gee, I'd really like to meet a prophet. Not sure you would. Not sure you would. There's a lot of non-profit organizations around, but not sure you would. This is his friend. This is a cousin. This is the prophet. Comes in and says, set your house in order because you're going to die. And then leave. If that's the visit of a friend, a prophet, and a cousin, I could do without it, thank you. He turns over, rolls over and begins to call out on God. Isaiah is no, not even outside the palace precincts. God speaks to him again. He says, go back and tell him his life's going to be extended for 15 years. And God raised Hezekiah up that night, delivered him from his deathbed. He's expected to die over those few days. And that night he also slew 185,000 of the enemy were slain on the other sides of the walls of Jerusalem. And not an arrow was shot. This is the psalm that commemorates him. Psalm 46, the chief musician of Samzakara, song upon thy lemoth. God is our refuge. No wonder they can say that with 185,000 dead over the walls. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will we not fear, though the earth be removed, though the mountains be um, 
carried into the midst of the sea. Though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. Now thinking about the the, uh, tunnel of water that had been brought into the middle of uh, Jerusalem, look at verse 4. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her and that right early. I'm reading from the King James, but if you've got one of the other translations, it often says God shall help her at the breaking of the dawn or the beginning of the day. Because the enemy, the Assyrians, were killed right at the point of the dawn. Right at the point of the dawn. We know that from history. Verse 6, the heathen rage. This is Sennacherib, king of the Assyrians, Rabshakeh, his general. The kingdoms were moved as they took city after city. He, yet the Almighty, uttered his voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Hold the reading and just think. It's just before the dawn. There's a terrible commotion over the walls of Jerusalem. Two of the soldiers are trying to stay hidden in case an arrow comes their way. And as the dawn begins to break, because that terrible commotion has gone to deathly silence now, in the first rays of the dawn, you can imagine one of them saying to his friend something like, is it my imagination or is that a body out there on the ground? And his friend's trying to look. He says, I don't think it's up body. I think there's two or three because there's increasing light now coming with the dawn. And I think, look, there's another light. Look, there's not just 10, 100, there's 185,000 of the enemy. No wonder it could say in verse 8, Come behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he has made in the earth. He makes wars to cease. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in sunder. He burns the chariots in the fire. Do you know that Herodotus, the Greek historian, says about this battle that um, uh, a plague of rats swept into the camp of the Assyrians, destroyed their weapons, specifically chewed through the strings of their bows and caused a plague that killed 185,000. Personally, I couldn't care less if God used fleas. I don't need history to be there to confirm that before I believe the word of God. But it's interesting when history does have a comment and actually makes a specific comment about the destruction of the bows, which is specifically within this verse. And then there's the verse you know about Psalms 46, which is most popular of any of the verses. Because they thought their king would die overnight. Here he comes walking, totally healed by the power of God. The enemy's camps are full of food. The city is saved. There's incredible celebration. And then there's that sort of holy hush as they sort of realize God is in the midst. And that great verse, be still and know that I am God. I'll be exalted amongst the heathen. I'll be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Fabulous psalm. The water that used to run out of the side of uh, Jerusalem at Gion or the Virgin's Pool would, of course, splash down the sides of the, uh, into the valley, the Kidron Valley, and ran the side of Jerusalem into the Jordan, and the Jordan eventually runs into the Dead Sea. You say, what's your point? Life-giving water is going to waste. God never intends life-giving water to go to waste. God always intends life-giving water to come to the benefits of the city. So it's a re-diverted and tunneled. Three years tunneling. Now remember, no theodolites, no pneumatic drills, no tunneling equipment like we've got today. And it isn't even in a straight line. 
They worked from both ends. When they broke through, they were what is called the span of a hand, usually taken in the old measurements at four inches. They were the span of a hand away from perfect level. And they'd gone and then looped around for an odd reason, then went straight again. And the theory is why they looped around is because it was thought that the graves of Abraham, uh, not Abraham, sorry, David and Solomon and some of the kings were in that area. So they didn't want to go through the old boys, so they went around them. An amazing engineering feat. It must have been interesting in the marketplaces where, you know, the merchants are saying, have you heard about the tunnel? What are you talking about, the tunnel? The tunnel, the tunnel. Everybody's talking about the tunnel. Well, I haven't heard about it. What do you, well, they go to tunnel, Where? Under the city, so to bring water to the city. Well, that'll be the first, which it was. We well recognise that, of course, if the enemy had captured Jerusalem before the tunnel, he could have brought the city to its knees within days, not having water. But now it can hold out because it has life-giving water. God has never meant for all of his blessings to go out to waste. He means them to come to the benefit of the city. You know, so many Christians come to church and they have two buckets with them. I didn't see anybody with two buckets this morning. Or they've got them. You see, they're just hoping there's enough blessing in this service to to last all week so they can go home with their little buckets of blessing. But you see, God has an intended life for that. God wants life-giving water to come to our city. Our city is desperate for the good news that you already enjoy. He wants life. But the tragedy is, or rather the, the difficulty is, that that sometimes comes by going through the tunnels. Now, I don't think people are any different back in Hezekiah's time as today. Everybody was excited about the project. What a fantastic idea. We're going to dig a tunnel. Three months into the project, they're only 100 feet from both ends. This uh, rock is a bit harder than we thought it would be. Six months into the project, or a year into the project, several hundred feet. This is much harder than anybody said it would be couple of years into the project whose bright idea was this anyway how long have you been in your tunnel whether it's sickness or financial difficulties or relationship breakdown let me tell you we serve the God of the breakthrough he wants us to break through our tunnels so we can bring life giving water to our city but the stuff you go through He becomes the resource that can minister to those around about you. Many of us have enjoyed time and time again the second book of Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, that talks about the comfort that comes our way when we go through tough stuff. That God will comfort us with all comfort. Why? So that we may comfort others. Sure, we'd rather not gone through the difficulty we did, the complete almost desolation of our life in a particular episode. Sure, Pauline and I would rather not, or particularly for my darling wife, would rather not have gone through this terrible accident last year. But one thing we know, he will never leave us or forsake us in our tunnel. Have you noticed that your tunnels do not have ways of sending you prior notification? You don't get a little uh, uh, letter in the mail from Gabriel. We thought we'd just let you know, Ivan and Pauline, your son's going to be involved in a horrendous motorbike accident and may die. Which he didn't. God graciously brought him back again. 
The interesting thing is that uh, that weekend we were still lecturing. I was still lecturing at the National Bible College of the Assemblies of God, training ministers, just before we went full-time into travelling. And our son was involved in a terrible accident. But we were guest speakers at a family camp for a couple of churches that had combined. The last session that we had done was the Saturday morning just before lunch, where Pauline spoke first, how to cope with stress in the 80s. It was the 1980s then. And I'd spoken after her. We did a tandem session. Then the afternoon, we hear the news about our son. I had to, we had to obviously dump the camp, head back to Sydney. That's the only time in my life I can guarantee you I did not speak, stick to the speed limit. I have a son that's hanging between life and death. I have to give the neurosurgeon permission over the phone to do a cerebral tap. We don't know what state he's in, in a coma by the time we get there. Isn't it interesting? One minute we're talking about how to cope with stress in the 80s, and the next minute, we're in it. We're in it. Life's a bit like that. One of the Australian Prime Ministers is credited of saying life wasn't meant to be easy, but that's not what he said, which is usually indicative of the media that don't report accurately. What he actually said was life wasn't meant to be easy, but it is meant to be delightful. Some of the stuff we go through is not easy, but it is meant to be delightful. That we would know the delight of knowing a God who would never abandon us in the midst of our tunnel. When we read that fabulous verse that I've just quoted, that he will never leave us or forsake us in Hebrews 13. You know it's written in the original language and what's called a triple negative. Australian, if you've ever... Australian. English, if you've ever had to learn English as a second language, you would know what a stupid language it is. Because... Truly, because we have rules and then we say, but the exceptions are. Well, if you've come from other nations, their rules, their grammar, their syntax, etc. is very accurate, unlike English. And so when we translate, or the English is translated in Hebrews 13, I will never leave you or forsake you, that's the best we can do. But in the Greek, it's a triple negative. So it should be translated this way. I will never leave you. That's once. Again, I state, I will never leave you. That's twice. Again, I stay and reinforce, I will never leave you or forsake you. See, God's trying to get something through to our thickest cranius. He's not going anywhere when we're in our tunnels. He's not going anywhere. And by the way, we don't always act the same way as other Christians. The last thing a fellow saint, a friend, a relative, or yourself needs... When you're going through a time of difficulty, is a super spiritual Christian around? Well, if you had more faith, you wouldn't be going through that. You try it. Thing is, what we need to be is real friends. Real friends. We don't react the same way. Don't use plastic phrases like, oh, I know what you're going through. No, you don't. You're better off to say, I have no idea what you're going through. But what I want you to know is Pauline and I are going to be praying for you every lunchtime this week. We've just got it on our heart to pray for you and see you and the family come right through this situation. We're right there. If there's anything we can do for you, we're right here for you. There's the sort of friends we need. I remember standing at the bedside of Justin and um, there's tubes going through him everywhere. His head had gone through. He was a pillion passenger on the back of a motorbike. 
And it wasn't the bike's fault. A, a combi van, a VW combi van, had turned in the middle of the road. And uh, they tried to avoid it by speeding up or the driver had, which was probably a silly thing to have done. Justin gets caught up in the whole bull bar, head through the windscreen over the front. Then the, the combi van goes over him and the bike. So he's got a broken uh, thigh, he's tubes everywhere. And I'm standing there thinking, I'd have to be scrubbed down, not just simply gowned up as well, standing in this highly sterile ward and thinking, pray. That's a good idea. How do you pray? So well, that's not very spiritual. Hey, at this point I'm a dad. My child, my son, my 17-year-old, is hanging between life and death and may die. I'm a dad. Please excuse me if I don't sound too spiritual. And I didn't know how to pray. But that's okay. Because I reckon we live life so in touch with God. When we come into these situations, we're okay. We've got the, we've got the bases covered. Because he's a, he's a great and his loving God. And we were quite prepared for the fact if the Lord took him home, we knew where he stood with God. God graciously raised him, brought him out of the coma, went through different levels of dependency from intensive, high intensive to intensive to high dependency and then into normal wards. So it was weeks and weeks with recovery. And Pauline was speaking somewhere at a ladies' function about six weeks later or something like that. I, she, I, I must have needed the car, otherwise she would have driven herself. And I arranged what time to pick her up at the church. When I came in, she's still speaking, so I thought with all these ladies, my smartest place for me was up the back and I hear her finishing off and saying you know thank you for for all of your prayer support when Justin was uh, in hospital and God has done a wonderful miracle she said but you know one of the most profound things to me was the peace of God that covered my life during that time they had accommodated Pauline and I in an emergency section of the hospital like accommodation for relatives which was very gracious of them and there's a single bed and a little roll-out bed from underneath, and I'm on that. And Pauline's saying, you know, the whole night I was covered with a piece of God, like a huge blanket. And I thought, that's interesting. I'd not heard this. So she finishes the meeting and prays for folk. And as we're driving home, I said, that was an interesting illustration about the peace of God covering you like a blanket all night when we stayed in the hospital. She said it was a wonderful experience. I said, but you haven't mentioned it. She said, yes, but you know what we Pentecostals are like, big on experience. I just wanted to know that I had felt it. I said, but it must have been wonderful. She said it was. But I said, now, so that I fully understand this, sweetheart, I said, you weren't being slightly evangelistic, were you? She looked at me, I said, well, you said all night. I said, you actually meant all night the peace of God covered you? She said, yes. And I said, and like a warm, because it was July, so it was winter months, like a warm, woolly blanket. She said, yes. I said, all night. She said, yes. And I said, you had this warm, woolly blanket. She said, yes. I said, so I've got it right. All night. She said, what are you getting at? I said, you selfish thing. I said, here I am in my little bed and I haven't got any peace. At least you could have shared your blanket with me. See, we don't respond the same way. And it doesn't make one spiritual and one not spiritual. Here, God 
brought Hezekiah through an amazing experience and the city through an amazing experience. Raised from his deathbed, 185,000 of the enemy. But you could have been in a tunnel too. A few weeks, a few months, a few years. But I want to tell you, the same God that brought Hezekiah through is the same God that's our God and he's with us in our tunnel. And he will not abandon us. Because you see, when we've been through something, or rather, just make sure it doesn't go through you, when we've been through something, we can let that life-giving water come through our life. I've been there, I know that. And God can use it in a very powerful way. The introduction of the psalm, you'll notice I was at pains to read because they're, they're very beautiful. It talks about the, uh, the Alamoth. The Alamoth there is a female choir. You're probably aware of the fact that all of the choirs, the majority of the choirs in Old Testament times were male. Very rare to have female choirs. But David, when he brought the Ark of the Covenant in, instituted the Alamathic Choir, which was a choir of Kohathitish virgin young women. And they danced around and sang as the Ark was brought in. It was specially created for that. Psalm 24, you probably know it. Lift up your gates, O ye everlasting gates, and the King of glory. It is the women dancing, singing that. The soldiers are on the battlements and they are the ones who are then singing in antiphonal response. They're singing, lift up your gates, O your everlasting gates, and the king of glory shall come in. The soldiers then sing, who is the king of glory? It's a military challenge and they respond back. It was a fabulous choir of women. But the only psalm, they're used in that psalm but not mentioned, but the only psalm that carries it in its heading is this one. It's as if it is so special that there are some songs that only the bride of Christ can sing. There are some songs that only those in that relationship with God can sing. It is not easy to sing when we're in the midst of our tunnel. We want to put our tools down and sit down on a rock and have a pity party. Well, you're going to have one, have a good one, a quick one and get over it. Pick the tools up again. You could be that close to just breaking through. And we serve the God of the breakthrough. They broke through. Water surged through Hezekiah's tunnel. Still does today. If you visit um, Israel, you can actually, on some occasions, walk all the way through Hezekiah's tunnel. But you know, God wants to just turn around your tunnel. It's not how clever we are or how long we've been in it. We need a miracle-working God to bring us out of our tunnels. Amen? And we serve a miracle-working God. Let me finish on three comments of human beings within this psalm. It, in actual fact, is a psalm demonstrating the actions of God, not the actions of men. There are 12 actions of God in this psalm. I mean, he's going to kill 185,000 of the enemy. There's actions of God. Such as God is our strength, action of God. So the three of man are important. I'm not a lot into formulas because we're all snowflake Christians. We're all just so totally different that what works for one doesn't always work for the other. But these three things I think are important for all of us. And it's not like there are three steps. You must take one before you can take two, before you can take three. Because I think you can actually take them together. 
The first is dealing with fear. And it's fear not. You say, that's the last thing I needed to hear. I'm in the middle of my tunnel. That twerp up there tells me to fear not. Well, just hang on a minute. The second one is, come behold the works of the Lord. So you start going back in your mind, God, I thank you for raising up our son out of that situation of uh, the motorbike accident and delivering him into life. Our Prime Minister has put our son onto committees. He's been on the taxation board. He leads an incredible life because God brought him out of the situation. God, thank you, you did that. Thank you, Lord, that you healed our daughter. Total deafness in the right ear. She was totally deaf. And God miraculously healed. In my Bible case, I have two reports when she was a gorgeous little six-year-old. She's still a gorgeous 38-year-old. But nevertheless, uh, when she was a little tight, two reports, one showing she's totally deaf, and the other one, five weeks later, there's nothing wrong with the hearing because we took the whole church, went to prayer. See, we never, we never noticed this as a parent. She was a perfect child. I'm serious. I had to discipline my daughter once in her entire life. So I never picked up on this. She was always completely obedient, just like her father. But God miraculously heals. See, you behold the works of the Lord. Paul nearly died in the delivery of, of, of Justin, but God brought her through. And I thank God. And Justin nearly drowned. You might say, you've got a disaster of a family. No, normal stuff. But you go back over the things that God has done. What's the old uh, adage? Fear came knocking at the door, faith opened, and there was no one there. So, although it's a command to fear not, how do we get to that position? By, come behold the works of the Lord. Thank you, God, for doing this. Thank you, God, for doing that. Thank you, God, for doing this. Thank you when you did that for our family. Thank you when you did that for granddad or whatever. And it builds the faith. And what's the last one? Be still and know that I am God. We have pastored for many years at one of our churches. We pioneered with eight in the first service. Pauline and I and two children were four of them. We had a 50% hold on the church in the first service. And I was still professionally teaching at that stage, so over half the times were my hours. Well, we believed in church growth, so we had another child the next year. (laughs) But God blessed and we saw some 600 come into the life of that church. But you know, one of the other eight one of the other four, rather, was a lady who thought it was her God-given mission in life to make my life miserable. And she worked consistently at it. She fulfilled her calling. I had to come to a point with this woman, with, hey, Ivan, because our church started to grow very quickly. Hey, Ivan, if you can't put up with one of them in 20 or one of them in 30, how are you going to put up with two of them in 60 or 70? Because if you can't put up with two of them in 60 and 70, how are you going to put up with three of them in 100 or four of them in 200 or five of them in 500? You know what I mean? Stop looking at that which is an irritant. Start looking at the pearl it creates. And so one day she came up knowing my wonderful love of the exposition of the word of God. She came up to talk to me because she wasn't happy about how noisy our services were becoming. It was in the early 1970s, the charismatic move was on. Our church was alive with praise and worship. And she said, you know, our services are far too noisy. I said, but boy, you're going to have trouble when you get to heaven, aren't you? And then she thought she would get on side with my biblical exposition love. And she said, do you know, the word of God has one of the words for praise means to kneel quietly. I said, sister, I'm impressed. I thought the only Hebrew you knew was the guy that runs the tailor shop. 
I say the actual fact there's around about eight or nine different Hebrew words that can only be translated our English phrase. I said you're absolutely correct that that particular one... (laughs) That particular one is only used three times. Did you know that, sister? (gasps) No. I said, how about the word shriganoff? I like that. It means wild, enthusiastic, demonstrative, singing and dancing. Or as Leon Patello used to say, get down. Yeah. I said, how about the word halal, which is used dozens of times in Scripture, from which we get our word hallelujah. I said, it means to clamour foolishly. I haven't seen you clamouring foolishly lately, sister. Well, off she went. Most of those people are blessed with what I call the spirit of the boomerang. In other words, sooner or later, they're back. And then she was back a few weeks later. You know that conversation we were having? I almost felt like saying the conversation you were having, but nevertheless, what is it, sister? She said, I found a verse. Oh, it really worries me when Christians find verses. It never worries me when they live them. But when they find them, they'll take a text out of context, which becomes a pretext for error. And she says, Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God, as if, top that one. <laughs> I squared my shoulders and I said, sister, did you know there are 12 different Hebrew words that can only be translated praise? 12. And the one you have chosen to cite is the only one that is used. It is so unique in that place, never used anywhere else. And I said, it doesn't mean what you think it means. Be still, either motion-wise or sound-wise. I said, it means desist from your own efforts and know that I am God. I think it's the NIV, I could stand correction on that, translates it, cease striving and know that I am God. Do you want to know what it is in the Aramaic language? The Aramaic doesn't have punctuations which we get our sense of meaning at times. But it has diction or volume. Let me give you the translation of be still and know that I am God out of the Aramaic. Let it go! Whatever your problem is, let it go. With all the volume you can, leave it at the feet of the one who can bring us through our tunnels. He can. So this morning I'm believing I serve a miracle-working God.